Hello listeners, welcome to a new episode of Computationally Yours. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Sabha Kadri and I am Arshi Arora. This is Computationally Yours. So listeners, we are starting a new trend at Computationally Yours starting this week. This is especially a very very special episode for us because we are finishing up 6 months of computationally yours this week. Yay! <laughs> um we launched our very first episode on 28th April 2020. So the trend that we're going to be starting is that at the end of every month we will be doing a science news recap episode. We're going to be focusing on selected highlights in scientific news as well as some selected scientific publications that came out this month. Uh yep, that's right. Uh we wanted to share little snippets of interesting stuff. Plus, as Sabha said, we wanted to play around with a different format and there can never be enough of that. Arshi, you know, I counted and across the 22 episodes uh that we have including this one, we actually have 11 types of episodes <laughs> or formats of episodes <laughs> so you can think that if every episode format was a person we would have a cricket team <laughs> oh my god so but i i don't think a large portion of our listeners are going to get that reference oh that that's right actually okay so if every episode format was a person we would have an american football team okay wow it sounds like you were prepared with that Well, I won't lie. I totally saw the comment coming from you, so I was prepared. Um anyway, let's get started with today's episode. And uh, to be honest here, the entire idea of starting the scientific news highlights episode actually came from us wanting to cover this one story in the news. There are no prizes for guessing this one. As you all know, on October 7th of 2020 came the announcements of the Nobel Prize laureates. Though science touches our lives in various ways, the most prestigious award of all is is the Nobel Prize. And and I'm going to quote Alfred Nobel himself here and he says that the Nobel Prize are awarded to those who during the preceding year have conferred the greatest benefit to humankind. Nobel prizes are awarded in the fields of physics, chemistry, physiology or medicine, literature and peace. And this year's Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to two women scientists, Dr. Emmanuelle Charpentier from the Max Planck Unit for the Science of Pathogens, and Dr. Jennifer A. Doudna from the University of California, Berkeley, for the development of a method for genome editing, or CRISPR. And CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. or crispr associated systems or cas systems well we can see why they need an acronym for that given that crispr yeah. is clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats <laughs> the colloquial term for crispr has been genetic scissors and we will shortly get to why that is but for now in simple english i can tell you that crispr is the ability to cut dna wherever we want CRISPR has truly been a technology that has been developing and growing for quite a few years now. It is about 8 years since it really started coming into the limelight. And here's your first fun fact for today. In 2012, when the first paper came out from uh, Dr. Doudna and Dr. Charpentier, there were a total of 145 papers in PubMed about CRISPR. This year in 2020, 
There have been 5,000 publications already, and the year is not even over. In fact, I remember uh, hearing about CRISPR's application in gene editing when I was working at the Broad Institute back in 2013, and I really didn't even understand it at that time. Actually, CRISPR was one of the topics that we were unable to cover in our episode where we were reviewing the roadmap of the future of genetics and genomics. But enough with all these fun facts. Uh, Arshi, why don't you take our listeners through a brief history and science of CRISPR? Uh, sure. So in August 2012, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna published in, in Science Journal about their work on studies of how bacteria fights off viral infection. Together, they succeeded in recreating the bacteria's genetic scissors in a test tube and simplifying the scissors' molecular components so they were easier to use. What it means is that uh, there has been a lot of advancements in the field of genome editing, but this technology was revolutionary in the sense that it was easily programmable. And, and before I go deeper into the programmable bit, let's go back to when a virus invades the bacterium body. When there's a viral infection, the bacteria has an adaptive immune system to fight it off that can detect the viral DNA and destroy it. Think of this as how in a document we can search for a particular word, possibly a typo, locate it precisely, and edit it and correct it. Briefly talking about the bacterial infection again, when that viral infection happens in the bacteria, the virus incorporates actual bits of its DNA at this site called CRISPR. The CRISPR locus is special. It consists of repeats and spacers. And the viral DNA gets inserted at, at the spacer at this locus. Also, this is the region that is passed on to future progenies so that the cells are protected from that virus for many generations. I know a while ago when I heard Jennifer Doudna's TED Talk, um, maybe like five years ago, where uh, she cites her colleague Blake Weinhaf calling CRISPR locus as essentially a genetic vaccination card in the cells. Anyway, so the next player is Cas9 protein, which recognizes the CRISPR locus and cleaves the double-stranded DNA, making a precise break and removing that viral DNA. And the last two key players are the CRRNA or, or CRISPR RNA and transacting CRISPR RNA, also known as tracer RNA. These two then guide the Cas9 to the target site where it will make its final cut in the double-stranded DNA. Now, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier re-engineered the CRISPR-Cas9, this endonucleus, into a more manageable system by fusing these two RNA molecules into a single guide RNA that, when combined with Cas9, could find and cut the DNA target specified by the guide RNA. So now we have the two key players, Cas9 and the single guide RNA, which guides the Cas9 where to cut. And by manipulating the sequence of this guide RNA, Cas9 can be programmed to target the matching DNA sequence where it is ready for cleavage. Uh, so that's all about the science of CRISPR. Now we know why they were given the Nobel Prize, right? Wow, Ashi, that was a tough one to actually explain over a podcast, I have to say. Yeah. It is definitely a complex system. And, you know, we should leave a link in our uh, description with uh, for people who want to look up more information about the system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Sabha, why don't you tell us about a little bit of the controversies that are surrounding the CRISPR technology? Yeah. So unfortunately, the story does come with some controversies as well. But I'm going to highlight two main stories. 
one of them actually has to do with the patents for CRISPR. Mm-hmm. The story itself gets quite messy, but I'm going to just highlight a couple of things here. When the news of the Nobel Prize came out, you know, the scientific community was anticipating that maybe Dr. Feng Zhang from the Broad Institute might share the prize. As you mentioned already, Arshi, Dr. Charpentier and Dr. Doudna published their landmark science paper about CRISPR in 2012. Dr. Zhang showed, I think, about six months after that paper, along with Dr. George Church from Howard University, that CRISPR worked in human cells, which was a very big deal as well. But the institutions of the three scientists have been locked in a fierce patent battle over who deserves the intellectual property rights to CRISPR's discovery. You can completely imagine that with its potential, this technology could be worth billions of dollars. So basically, when the papers started coming out in 2012-2013, before all of these battles began, there were even talks of many companies being formed to unlock the potential of CRISPR for human therapeutics. There are reports that Dr. Charpentier, along with a couple of her colleagues, tried to form a company with all the leading researchers of CRISPR early on, including Dr. Church and Dr. Zhang, but that didn't happen. Eventually, even Dr. Charpentier and Dr. Doudna had some strained relationships, and this has been called delicate in the news as well. To be honest, really, these things do happen in science. It's not unheard of. With CRISPR specifically, the stakes are just so high, and the institutes also have to step in to protect their interests. We will link a science news article that will actually describe the entire drawn-out patent battle for those who are interested. In the latest news, though, the patent board uh, ruled on 10th of September 2020 that the Broad Institute group gets priority in its already granted patents to use the original CRISPR system in eukaryotic cells. But the ruling also gives University of California and the University of Vienna group a leg up on the invention of a critical component of the CRISPR toolkit. Yes, Sabha, you're right. This does sound messy. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, Arshi, the battle's not over. You know, this thing is still not reached a final conclusion of sorts. But anyway, let me move to the second story that I wanted to highlight. Last year, there was a huge stir among scientists when it was reported that CRISPR was actually used in one of the most controversial experiments in science in decades. A Chinese scientist edited the genomes of human embryos, which resulted in the birth of three babies with altered genes. Of course, I mean, scientists from all over the world condemned him, mainly because this technology is still not mature enough for us to understand the unintended side effects of using it in humans. But the scientist was eventually sentenced to jail in China. As a side note, though, you must know that China has been quite a leader in many other areas of CRISPR research as well. But let me bring this story to an end here. Controversies aside, the ceremony for the Nobel Prize will be held on December 10th, 2020, and we will be cheering all the scientists. Yes, we will be cheering for all the scientists. I have one more fun fact before before we go ahead uh, for our listeners today. Mm-hmm. So did you know that 57 women have been awarded the Nobel Prize between 1901 and 2020? And uh, Marie Curie was awarded the Nobel Prize twice, uh, in, in 1903 for physics and then in 1911 for chemistry. Oh, yes. She is the first woman to win the Nobel Prize and also the only woman to win the Nobel Prize twice. 
One last thing I would want to say just before we finish the CRISPR story is that what we really want is is a prudent path forward so that this technology uh, has an ethical and moral compass to take it forward. Anyways, the next piece that we want to bring to you is the editorial by New England Journal of Medicine that got published on October 8th. This article, according to me, was this lone voice that resonated so many of my inner feelings. And I felt I'm not alone in feeling disoriented in these current circumstances. But before I dive into this article, I also read the responses of this editorial in other news outlets. One of them was this article from Washington Post, which we're going to again link in our references below. So according to the Washington Post article, it is the first time since 1812 that New England Journal of Medicine broke with its non-partisan position and weighed in on U.S. presidential election. The editorial named Dying in a Leadership Vacuum that outright questions the current leadership under the current president and his administration and how it has failed its people. And just to quote directly from the article, they have taken a crisis and turned it into a tragedy, end quote. I think this article is more timely than ever during the current election time, especially. The piece, uh, which was signed by 34 of the journal's editors, sheds light on the magnitude of the current leadership's failure to respond to the virus and the outbreak, which has now taken the lives of over 200,000 Americans at a death rate that's double of that of Canada, exceeds that of Japan, a country with a vulnerable and elderly population, and even of some lower middle-income countries such as Vietnam. Yarshi, it is truly an unprecedented time for science, and I am really happy happy that you selected this editorial piece to highlight today. I don't know if you remember this, but not so long ago, just six months ago, when we were starting this podcast, you and I had a conversation where we were talking about some ground rules of what we stood for and what we did not stand for and what this podcast was going to be about. And we said to each other that this podcast is solely about science and we would stay away from any political conversations because we don't want to undermine the scientific content in any way. Little did I realize that in this short span of time, the war on science itself would become so political that we might not be able to stay apolitical anymore. In fact, I just want to do a shout out and strongly urge our listeners to go listen to our episode on challenges in COVID testing, because you will be able to hear the frustrations of some of the lab directors who do COVID testing and how politics has actually interfered with their oath to do the best for their patients. Anyway, Arshi, what else did this editorial highlight? Thank you, Saba, for mentioning this. But this New England Journal article, which is one of the major articles for scientific researchers, when the editorials published it, and I'm glad we took a stance on it, and now we're covering this in our episode as well. Absolutely. The editorial contrasts the United States' response to that of China, where quarantine and isolation measures were severe but effective, and to that of Singapore, South Korea, and New Zealand. U.S. also ranked lower in the list uh, of numbers of tests performed per infected person uh, internationally than countries that cannot boast the biomedical infrastructure or the manufacturing capacity that it has. The editorial also goes on to claim that while the U.S. came into the crisis with 
tremendous advantages in biomedical research and public health expertise via the CDC, NIH and FDA. However, the inconsistencies between these institutions and the government responses on the issues of basic quarantine measures, social distancing guidelines and mask mandates have led in the public a major distrust. The editorial also touched upon how some communities have been affected more with this outbreak and the multitude of negative outcomes such as increased tensions associated with inequality, disrupted social and intellectual development of school children, which we really need to focus on right now, given the current circumstances, and undermining of the hard work of healthcare professionals and disease rates that have prevented many businesses from opening, resulting in the loss of hundreds of billions of dollars and millions of jobs. I thought this was a really brave piece for a scientific journal to have. So, And we strongly urge our listeners to read more about it so that you know that it's based in actual scientific evidence. Anyway, this brings us to our last segment for our news episode. Arshi, what do we have? Yes. So the last piece that we want to cover is uh, another article that the New England Journal of Medicine published, which was the final reports of sorts for remdesivir for the treatment of COVID-19. This study was a randomized clinical trial with 1,062 patients. And the study showed that remdesivir reduced the length of hospital stays in some COVID-19 patients. They finally concluded that remdesivir was superior to placebo in shortening the time to recovery in adults who were hospitalized with COVID-19 and had evidence of lower respiratory tract infection. But there's another study from the WHO with 12,000 patients called the Solidarity Trial that shows no significant effect of remdesivir on COVID-19 patients. But this is in preprint, which means that it is not published in a peer-reviewed journal yet. And thus, we don't want to highlight it just yet, but we will soon as it publishes. Yes, hopefully uh, next month's episode, huh? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think that this article and the preprint that we mentioned is specifically critical because as of last Thursday, the FDA in the United States approved remdesivir to treat COVID-19. And there are still concerns that the science is shaky for this approval. As a very quick recap here, the FDA gave an emergency use authorization to this particular drug in May, this allowed it to be used to treat patients who had severe COVID-19. But in August, the FDA then relaxed its guidelines to allow the drug to be used in less serious cases. The FDA cited three clinical trial studies for its approval, including the one that Arshi just mentioned from NEJM with the 1,062 patients. The problem here is that the World Health Organization study, which also, as she mentioned, which isn't published in a peer-reviewed journal yet, definitely still raises concerns. And also, as we all have read in the news before this, there have been quite a few questionable decisions that the FDA has made in terms of authorization of other COVID-19 therapies that make it look that sometimes they've been influenced by political pressure. And that is why this particular decision has had some level of controversy as well. Listeners, this brings us to the end of the episode. Every month, in fact, every day in all these scientific journals, which are peer-reviewed, there's a lot of research and publications that come out. We only picked uh, a few to highlight in today's episode. So send us your comments in the email below. Uh, we received some great responses for our bioinformatic episode, and we will be reading these on one of our future episodes soon. 
Yes, listeners, thank you so much for engaging with us in all the experiments that we keep doing on computationally yours. I know um, today's episode, even though we started with the Nobel Prize, has been a little bit on the darker side, talking a lot about controversies, but uh, such is just uh, the times we live in right now. We hope to keep bringing you the latest in science and the most accurate information that we can put out there. Until next time, this is Computationally Yours.